Hey, Scott here with Grace Bible Church. Before we get into this message, I just wanted to thank you for streaming this sermon. We pray that each week you are challenged by who God is and what he has done for you. Now, this is never meant to be a substitute for you to be an active member of a community of faith. If you live in the Hollidaysburg area, or if you're in town for any reason, we encourage you to gather with us on Sunday mornings for our word and worship. You can learn more about what God is doing through our church body on our website, gbclive.org. If you're glad to be in church today, say amen. If you're not glad, just sit there and don't say anything. But um, I want to welcome all of you. And those of you online that are watching, we're always happy to have our online audience with us as well. Well, we are in Matthew chapter 22 this morning, and we're going to pick it up in verse 15 of Matthew chapter 22. Then the Pharisees went and plotted how they might entangle him in his talk. And they sent to him the disciples with the Herodians, saying, Teacher, we know that you are true and teach the way of God in truth. Nor do you care about anyone, for you do not regard the person of men. Tell us, therefore, what do you think? Is it lawful to pay taxes to Caesar or not? But Jesus perceived their wickedness and said, Why do you test me, you hypocrites? Show me the tax money. So they brought him a denarius. And he said to them, Whose image and inscription is this? And they said to him, Caesar's. And he said to them, Render therefore to Caesar the things that are Caesar's, and to God the things that are God's. And when they heard these words, they marveled and left him and went their way. When I prepared this message, I did not know that Pastor Lou was preaching last Sunday, and uh, I didn't know the title of his message, Is There Any Hope for Pastor Lou? Oh, I'm sorry, that wasn't the title. Uh, it was, Is There Any Hope for America? Yeah, I got confused there for a minute. And um, so I didn't realize that when I planned on preaching about the Christian and American culture. Well, we are privileged to live in the land of the free. We have these wonderful privileges given to us by our forefathers. We acknowledge that many men and women have literally given their lives that we might have these freedoms. The fact that we could come to church today freely and not be harassed. The fact that we could have chosen to stay home or we could have chosen to go to another church, that there is no state religion. And the fact that we have freedom of expression and freedom of speech. American citizenship is a very precious thing. Benjamin Franklin said, only a virtuous people are capable of freedom. As nations become more corrupt and vicious, they have more need of tyrants. Now, we have to remember, because sometimes I think we, we sort of try to extrapolate what the Apostle Paul, what Peter, what Jesus said into our times, but we always have to remember the times that these people were living in. And so Paul and Peter and even Jesus lived in the time of the Roman Empire. They lived in the time of the cult of emperor worship. And so we have to be careful when we look at what the Bible says about situations back then and how we interpret that and apply that to our situation today. Their experience of civil government and of culture was very different than our experience. But even so, the Apostle Paul at times took advantage of his Roman citizenship. It was in Philippi where Paul and Silas were beaten and thrown into jail. The next day, the city magistrates sent word to release them. And Paul said, wait a minute, they have beaten us openly, uncondemned Romans, and have thrown us into prison. 
So in essence, Paul said, you let them come and, and, and let us out because what they did was totally illegal. We remember that Paul was arrested in Jerusalem and he was about to be scourged. And Paul said to the centurion who stood by, is it lawful for you to scourge a man who is a Roman and uncondemned in Acts 22? And so this man went to his superior and said, be careful, this man is a Roman citizen because that carried a lot of weight back in the Roman Empire. We know that Paul was eventually imprisoned in Caesarea for two years. When he stood before the judgment seat, he appealed to Caesar, and he was told to Caesar, you will go. And so Paul, uh, God used Paul's Roman citizenship to take him to the very heart of the empire, to Rome, where he could share the gospel and preach the gospel. So we as Americans have freedom of speech. We have freedom of religion. And like the Apostle Paul, we should not just, you know, be comfortable in the freedoms that we've inherited, but we should use those freedoms to proclaim the gospel of Christ. Now, the New Testament presents a pretty amazing fact, and the fact is we have dual citizenship. Philippians chapter 3, our citizenship is in heaven, from which we also eagerly wait for the Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. What an amazing statement. When you come to faith in Christ, you have citizenship in heaven. A Sunday Sunday before, we talked about heaven, and very likely uh, we may go right into the new Jerusalem when we die, but we certainly know that in eternity we will dwell in the new Jerusalem, and we will have citizenship in that city and in heaven. Our daughter-in-law is from Ethiopia. Uh, She and her family migrated to Canada, where she has citizenship. And then when she married our son, uh, she applied for American citizenship. And she had to go through certain things and uh, take a test. And and that was a very joyful day when she was given American citizenship. And she raised her hand, and I can't exactly remember uh, what the pledge was, and uh, became officially an American citizen. Are you a citizen of heaven? Do you have heavenly citizenship? You know, you don't inherit that just because you're alive or because you're born in America, quote-unquote, a Christian nation. Do you know that your name is written in heaven? Has there been a time where you confess with your mouth the Lord Jesus and believed in your heart that God has raised him from the dead and you became saved and you became a citizen of heaven? Now, that implies certain things. In 1 Peter chapter 2, Peter writes, Beloved, I beg you as sojourners and pilgrims. The word sojourners is a compound word. It comes from beside and house. So in reality, we live alongside the people of the world. In this culture, we live alongside people who live in American culture, as we do, but who are part of that culture and who, who continue to uh, promote that particular culture. Um, So we live alongside the people of the world. We are literally aliens. The dictionary has three definitions for the English word alien. Number one is extraterrestrial being. Well, I see a couple of you that that could apply to. Um, Number two is a non-resident citizen or non-citizen resident of a country. Number three is an outsider, somebody who does not belong or does not feel accepted by a group or a society. 
So in a real sense, as believers, we are aliens living within this culture. Though we are fully, if you're an American citizen, we have full American citizenship, but yet we are really not, at least we should not, be a part of the culture in the sense that we totally embrace everything the culture has to say. In 1 John 2.15, John says, Do not love the world or the things that are in the world. Now, he's not talking about the creation. He's talking about the world system, the values, the ideas. That's what makes up a culture. And so he's saying, look, you might be in the world. Their world was different, their culture different than our culture. But yet at the same time, he says, look, don't love the world and don't love the things that are in the world. So Jesus, in his high priestly prayer in John 17, prayed to the Father about his disciples. He said, I do not pray that you take them out of the world, but that you sanctify them, meaning set them apart, and then send them back into the world, because we have a message for the world. So what we learn that the Bible teaches us that we are in the culture, but not of the culture. It doesn't matter what country you live in or what, what time of history Uh, The culture in the first century was certainly different than this culture, but at the same time, we live in the culture, but we are not of the culture. So the issue is, how do we as Christians relate to our culture? And a number of different viewpoints uh, Christians have had over the centuries, even today. Some Christians take the view that uh, we should retreat within the walls of the family, the walls of the church, the walls of the Christian school, uh, the walls of different other Christian institutions. And uh, we should just huddle ourselves together and whatever they do out there, that's what they do. And uh, just sort of have a little circle around ourselves and isolate ourselves from the culture. Now, on the other end of the spectrum, you have people who are attempting to Christianize our culture and our government who want to see our culture become a, a certainly Christian culture. Now, we have a very unique perspective as American Christians. Think about the Christians who live in North Korea, who live in China, who live in many Muslim nations. They have a far greater challenge than what we do, living in this so far, so, so far free society. Many believe that America started out as a Christian nation. Certainly, the early years of America, there were many Christian influences, and we thank God for that. And some believe we have to call our nation back to God, that we as Christians are to change culture. We'll see that's not what God calls us to do. America certainly is unique among the nations of the world in that many of the founders were indeed true Christians, though many of them were deists. They didn't believe in Christ. G.K. Chesterton called America a nation with the soul of a church. I don't know if he'd say that today, because as we look at our culture and how far away from God we have gotten, our culture, we, I often say, is becoming more and more like Greek-Roman culture in the first century. But that's always been true in every culture of the world, because we know that Satan is the prince and power of the air. We know that that culture, no matter what culture it is, is energized by the evil one. So what is to be our response? Certainly the world that I live in now is far different than the world I lived in many years ago when I was a boy. 
Uh, I remember going to elementary school, the building still down there in Lakemont, and it, it, we did three things to start every, every day. The teacher got up, she read the Bible, um, he or she, um, we prayed, and we said a pledge allegiance to the flag. And that, that has long since gone. And that had profound uh, you know, Im- uh, impact upon me even as a child growing up in a Christian home and, and growing up in this church and hearing the gospel all of my life. So the world now that these young people are growing up in is far different than the world many of us grew up in. And so how are we to respond to this increasingly secularized American culture? Well, I believe this account in the life of Jesus can help us answer this question and can give us some insight. It's amazing that of all the encounters that is recorded for us, and we know that not everything Jesus taught or everything he did is included in the Bible. John uh, the Apostle says that there wouldn't be enough space in the world to write all those books. So God selectively chose through the Holy Spirit what he wanted these men to write to tell us, and I believe we have everything we need to know. But out of all those many instances and actions and words of Jesus, um, God wanted us to understand and have this particular account. And what we have here is a carefully laid plan that was doomed to fail. It's doomed to fail because these are people trying to entrap the Lord Jesus Christ. Verse 15, then the Pharisees went and plotted how they might entangle him in his talk. Now, those of us who've walked with the Lord for many years, uh, I chuckle every time I read something like that. Okay, how's that going to work out for you? You're going to try to entangle the Lord Jesus Christ in his speech, in what he says. Now, this event occurred in the last week of Jesus' earthly ministry. You take the first year, not quite a whole year, and we call that the year of inauguration. Who is this Jesus? Who is this, this itinerant rabbi? The second year is the year of popularity. This is when he feeds the 5,000. He does a number of miracles. Some believe he pretty much wiped out a disease up in Galilee, though we can't say that with assurance. But people were flocking to him, and, and he was doing incredible miracles. But the last year is the year of opposition, where people began to oppose this Jesus because of the claims that he was making that he was the Son of God, that he was God, among other things. And so he's already cleansed the temple of the money changers here in chapter 21. He's just given a parable against the religious leaders of of Israel. In fact, if you look over in chapter 21, verse 45, he gave these few parables. Now, when the chief priests and Pharisees heard his parables, they perceived that he was speaking of them, and he certainly was. And so this was offensive to these so-called religious leaders. In chapter 21, verse 31, Jesus said to them, Assuredly, I say to you that tax collectors and harlots enter the kingdom of God before you. You talk about something that the the, the religious leaders would get offended by. You know, these were the ones that the people uh, stood before the people. These were the super spiritual people in the culture. And Jesus comes by and he says to them, guess what? The lowest of the low, by your estimation in the culture who are the harlots and the tax collectors, they're going to go into the kingdom before you, not because they're harlots and tax collectors, but because they were more open to the message of the gospel and many believed on him. 
So the Pharisees in particular were leading the charge to get rid of Jesus. Now, one of the parallel passages is in Luke's gospel, chapter 20, and it says in verse 20 of Luke, so they watched him and sent spies who pretended to be righteous, that they might seize on his words in order to deliver him to the power and the authority of the governor. Well, our Lord is always aware of the plotting of evil men. There's a number of things we know happening in our culture, particularly to attack Christianity, particularly to attack the church of Jesus Christ and Christians. We're aware of that, of these insidious plans. But more so, God is aware of that. And we truly are engaged in a spiritual battle. But that's always been the case no matter what nation, no matter what culture believers live in. Ephesians 6.12, we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against principalities, against powers, against the rulers of the darkness of this age, against spiritual hosts of wickedness in the heavenly places. Yes, Satan is the prince and power of the air. He's the god of this age. And so we understand there is this perpetual conflict with the devil. So here you have something interesting. Former enemies unite against Jesus. Verse 16. And they, meaning the Pharisees, sent to him their disciples with the Herodians. Now this is fascinating. Because the Pharisees and the Herodians were adversaries. You see, the Herodians had a strong allegiance to Rome. The Pharisees were sort of like the original fundamentalists of their day, and they actually started out trying to protect the law and on all the good things of, of, of the Jewish faith. Unfortunately, they got all caught up in their own traditions. And so the Pharisees saw the Herodians as religious traitors turning against their country, turning to Rome. And so they come together, and what brings them together? Their hatred of Jesus. And so as they join forces, and we should not be surprised when various people from different poles come together to attack the church, to attack the faith. It's always been that way. And so these disciples wanted to seem more like honest inquirers than accusers. Also, I think Jesus probably knew many of these Pharisees by sight. This is the last week of his ministry. He's been ministering now for almost three years. And so many of these men were religious people, particularly of the Pharisees. And so they were men who knew the way of God generally, but they didn't follow it specifically. They're like people today who do not want God's truth to impact their life. They don't want it to impact their marriage. They don't want it to impact their morality. They don't want it to impact their business dealings. And so these hypocrites came to Jesus. And what they did was they brought a politically charged issue to Jesus, a politically charged issue. And I find it fascinating that God chose this particular account for us to have because he knew we would have to deal with this issue of our political leaders. He knew we would have to deal with corruption in government. He knew we'd have to deal with a culture that continues to push God out. And so they bring this to Jesus. Verse 16, teacher, we know that you are true and teach the way of God in truth, nor do you care about anyone for you do not regard the person of men. Doesn't mean he's uncaring. It's the idea is he doesn't play favorites. He's not impressed by somebody's title. Tell us, therefore, what do you think? 
Is it lawful to pay taxes to Caesar or not? They felt like they had an ironclad dilemma that Jesus could no way get out of. Here, I'm, we're bringing this to you. Should we Jews pay this tax to Caesar or should we refuse to pay it? Now, first of all, they come to Jesus with flattery, but yet they have hatred in their hearts. Psalm 12, 3, may the Lord cut off all flattering lips and the tongue that speaks proud things. Imagine the arrogance, the arrogance of these men to come to the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, this is toward the end of his ministry. You know, he has done these incredible miracles. He's raised people from the dead. He's given sight to the blind and amazing miracles. But yet, they will not believe in him. And so in their ignorance, they think they could entrap him. What they actually said contained truth. Jesus does teach the way of God. Jesus does teach truth. Jesus is true. In fact, he said, I am the way, the truth, and the life, and no one comes to the Father except through me. But if they really believed what they were saying, they would have been followers of Jesus. It was just flattery on their part. Remember, it's not what people say, it's what they do that reveals their true character. And of course, these leaders are not interested in truth. They're interested in entrapment. Isn't it amazing in our culture how truth has really taken a back seat? And, you know, how you can be accused of hate speech because you speak the truth. You speak the truth. And so Satan doesn't have that many tools in his bag. And he continues to use the same ones in every generation. Now, what's the issue here? We have to know something about the culture and what this tax was. This was the poll tax. This was an individual tax, head tax, that was to be paid yearly. Our English word census comes from this word in the Latin. The Jews paid many taxes, but of all the taxes they had to pay, this was indeed the most offensive because this tax had to be paid with the denarius. And the denarius was a specific type of coin. It was a silver coin minted by the emperor, engraved with his picture and the words, Son of God. Now imagine our country gets to the point where if you're going to pay your taxes, you have to use this particular kind of money. And they begin to mint coins with the picture of whoever the president is at the time. And then the inscription says, Instead of in God we trust, it says the Son of God. How offensive would that be to us as believers? That's just a little bit of how offensive that was to the Jews in the first century. This was really offensive. And so this caused a number of problems. And this is recorded in Acts 5.37 and 86. A man named Judas of Galilee had incited an insurrection over this tax that was put down by the Romans. Now, they think they have Jesus in a dilemma. So, if Jesus said, no, don't pay the tax, the Herodians would run to the Roman officials. They would say, this man is inciting insurrection. He is telling his followers not to obey the law. And so, that was their plan. Now, if Jesus said to pay the tax, then the Pharisees would begin to accuse him and get the people incited against him 
because here he is following the Romans and not taking a stand for his own people. Well, God disdains the feeble attempts made by the ungodly against him. Psalm 37, the wicked plots against the just and gnashes at him with his teeth. The Lord laughs at him for he sees that his day is coming. Day of reckoning is coming. A day of reckoning is coming. And all the leaders of every generation, remember what John says when he talked about the great white throne? And I saw the dead, small and great, standing before God. And the books were open. Well, Jesus answers with a very surprising response. Verse 18. But Jesus perceived their wickedness and said, Why do you test me, you hypocrites? <laughs> well, he starts out, you know, gets right to the heart of the matter right away. He calls them hypocrites. These self-righteous, pseudo-spiritual men must have been shocked by this response of the Lord Jesus Christ. He's not acting like somebody that they pushed into a corner. And so he responds back to them. He calls them exactly what they are. He spoke to the core issue of their hearts. They were hypocrites. Now, the word hypocrite, we learn, was used and comes from a word that was used of plays, Greek plays and actors in plays. They would take a mask and hold it up to their face, and they would portray another character. So the idea was, you know, who they're portraying is not who they really are. When they take the masks down, that's who they are. And so this word became developed to become a word that means a hypocrite, somebody who pretends or poses or presents himself as something that he really isn't. So Jesus goes right to the issue. He immediately saw through their flattery to their deception Luke 20, the parallel passage says, he perceived their craftiness, which has the idea of shrewdness and subtlety. They thought they were being so shrewd. They thought they were being so subtle. They thought that Jesus would not see through this, this, this charade that they came up with. But of course, Jesus already knew what they were about to do and saw right through their hypocrisy. So he exposes their hypocrisy for all to see. Verse 19, show me the tax money. So they brought him a denarius, and he said to them, Whose image and inscription is this? And they said to him, Caesar's. Now, again, we have to know something of the culture. The Romans, because this was such an insidious thing that these Jews had to use this coin to pay this particular tax. So the Romans permitted a copper coin to be printed, didn't have the picture of Caesar, it didn't have the inscription, Son of God, and they could use that in regular commerce. But to pay this tax, they had to use the denarius. Well, they proved their hypocrisy, because when Jesus said, show me a denarius, they didn't have any trouble finding one. They had one in their robe, because you see, they were hypocrites. And uh, hypocrites always want to have it both ways. The Pharisees were using Caesar's money. And so they, a denarius was readily available for them to show to Jesus. You know, hypocrisy involves deceiving other people. And if you become a hypocrite for so long, it's going to lead to duplicity. Duplicity means you begin to see, deceive yourself. And then duplicity can lead to apostasy. So these religious leaders had deceived themselves into thinking they were actually doing the will of God in opposing Jesus. Well, Jesus then clarified civil responsibility. This is what helps us here even today. Whether we're talking about 
our obligations to human government, when we're talking about culture, Jesus clarified this, verse 21. So they, they produced the coin. Can't you see Jesus? He's, he's just so marvelous. Can't you see him? He just holds this coin up for them to see. And, and, and as he ho- holds it up, you know, he says to them, whose image is this? This inscription, who, whose inscription is this, son of God? Well, they knew that it was Caesar's. So he said to them, render therefore to Caesar the things that are Caesar's, and to God the things that are God's. The word render means to pay or to give back. It implies a debt. It's used of something that's an obligation, not something that is optional. He was clearly saying, pay the tax. That's your civil responsibility, pay the tax. On the other hand, he was saying, look, you need to render to God the things that are God's. You need to fulfill your spiritual obligations to your heavenly Father. And Jesus, in essence, is saying, I, I see no conflict here. Um, and we'll get into what happens if government commands something that's outright against the will of God. So Jesus really is putting politics in its place. And along, I'd say, with politics, you can also apply that to culture. Note, the things that are Caesar's, that refers to civil government. That refers to the culture of the world. That refers to the world that we're not to love. That refers to the world that we are in but not of, the world that we are sent to witness to. And we're commanded to obey our leaders no matter how corrupt they are. We may look at some of our leaders today and some of our politicians and and we may see the corruption that's, I don't care what party it is or or whatever, what level of government, we we see corruption all around it. And it's always been that way and it will always be that way till Jesus comes and establishes a total righteous government. But also, we are to obey our leaders. And again, remember, we live in America, a free society so far. These people lived under the rule of the Caesars who had absolute authority, who could on a whim take your life. And Jesus said, obey your civil leaders. And 1 John 2.18, John says, the world is passing away and the lust of it. So we need to understand that what's in the world, what's in the cosmos, what's in the, the culture is temporary. We are not called to change culture. We are called that our lives should stand out against culture. We are called to live a life different than our culture. We are called to live a life of honesty and purity and not hypocrisy and and to live by truth. And we will come in conflict with a culture that says there is no truth or you can't know truth or even if there is truth, they don't want to hear it or they will, will tell you that you know, you speak the truth and you're speaking hate speech, doesn't matter. We're supposed to speak the truth and we're supposed to speak it in love. Peter wrote, therefore submit yourselves to every ordinance of man for the Lord's sake, whether to the king is supreme or to governors as to those who are sent by him for the punishment of evildoers and for the praise of those who do good. For this is the will of God, that by doing good, you may put to silence the ignorance of foolish men. Romans 13:1. let every soul be subject to the governing authorities, for there is no authority except from God, 
and the authorities that exist are appointed by God. Now, you say, what about when they command us something that is out of the will of God? Well, in Acts chapter 5, Peter and the other apostles stood before the Sanhedrin and were commanded not to preach in the name of Jesus. And their response was, we ought to obey God rather than men. Rather than men. Now, again, we live in America. Think about Christians again in China, in Muslim countries, in North Korea, in countries where it's illegal to have a Bible. You can be in prison for years just for being caught with a Bible in your possession. Think of, compared to them, how easy we really have it here. But at the same time, we are commanded to submit to the ordinances of men. And we are commanded to pray for our leaders. I often wonder how, how well, and I include myself in this, how well we do this. First Timothy, therefore I exhort first of all that supplications, prayers, intercessions, giving of thanks be made for all men, for kings and all who are in authority, that we may lead a quiet and peaceable life in all godliness and reverence. Now, if Jesus had stopped that render to Caesar, they would have caused a riot. But he didn't do that. He said, render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's. And then he followed it up with render to God the things that are God's. The things that are God's don't belong to Caesar. And in fact, the fact that Caesar is claiming deity was completely wrong. They were still to obey civil government, but they were to obey the things that are God's. And I believe what our job is, is to focus on the things that are God's. To be good citizens, to be better Christians. To live for Christ in this secularized culture. But that's always been the case for Christians in every country, in every generation. When civil leaders step outside their God-given realm, our obligation to obey them ceases. As Christians, we must always see our responsibilities to and involvement with civil government within the greater context of the Lordship of Christ. I think the involvement of Christians in political issues and social issues is a a Christian liberty uh, issue. Some Christians uh, become more involved than others. I think that's that's civil liberty. That's, That's between you and the Lord and how God wants you to to live your life. But we have to remember that the political issues, the cultural issues of life are secondary. The spiritual issues of life are primary. Jesus was saying in essence that the Roman coin was stamped with the image of Caesar, but you are stamped with the image of God. Therefore, glorify God in all that you do. Alistair Begg says, when I become preoccupied with the kingdoms of this world, I have made what is primary secondary and what is secondary primary. Whatever political or social agenda that's out there, it takes a distant second to my being committed, a committed disciple of Jesus Christ. My identity is in Christ. It's not my political persuasion. It's my identity in Christ, that I am a Christian, that I live for Christ. I live for the glory of God. This is what will impact culture. You know, I love those passages in in the book of Acts where we see Paul, uh, you know, leading uh, marches 
and, and protesting to the government and carrying those placards. What Bible are you reading, Pastor? I didn't see that in there. You won't see that in there, will you? What did Paul do? He went into a community and he preached the gospel. And he preached the gospel. And Christian people were saved and they began to live for Christ. It's fascinating that this account is also found in Mark and in Luke. But I chose Matthew's account purposefully. Because who was Matthew? His name was Levi. Uh, Where did Jesus meet him? Sitting in the tax office. Because Matthew was a tax collector. And I've often pictured Matthew sitting down and through the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, writing this particular account in his gospel. I wonder what went through his mind as he wrote these words. Well, Jesus once again silenced the voices of his critics. Can I remind you that Jesus will have the last word? He will have the last word. At the great white throne judgment, Jesus will have the last word over the people of this world, great and small, who have rejected him. And so we can live in great confidence. Uh, We can live for the glory of God. We can live knowing that we're on the winning side and Jesus Christ is going to come back one day and rule and reign and he will inherit the nations of the world. Verse 22, when they heard these words, they marveled. They left him and went their way. Luke 20, verse 26 says, they marveled at his answer and kept silent. So what are we to do? Interaction versus accommodation. We interact with our culture. We live in this world. We are part of this world, but we're not of this world. We're of another world. And so we are to live lives that have been separated. We are to live lives. We, we, we should think like a Christian, talk like a Christian, act like a Christian, have values like a Christian. And that's how we make an impact on the people around us. We are called to be salt and light in whatever community we find ourselves.